Well, that's a good opener, right? Good morning. Molly and I have been uh, trying to get in as many Christmas festivities in the last few weeks as possible. Uh, Many of that has been accommodated so lovingly by many of you who keep telling us of different Christmas activities to go do in the area or trying to twist our arm to come with you to do them. Either way, uh, we've had a wonderful time. One of the things uh, that we decided to do at my mother-in-law's twisting of our arms was to go watch a film that's currently out called I Heard the Bells. And this is a a film that really it was only going to have a limited four-day run and then they extended it. And now they've extended again, so you can actually go see it. I think some theaters in Knoxville, you'll have to do some searching online and find out where to go see it. I'd recommend it. Be prepared to be sad, though. Because this is the story of the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And it's the story of how he came to write the Christmas poem, Christmas Bells. And and you may be familiar with it. You know, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and it has the refrain throughout the poem of goodwill, sorry, of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And this, this whole film is really to teach you kind of the story and explain the events that led him to write this poem. He was a celebrity in his time. He was known as America's poet before he had even passed. But his life had a lot of ups and downs, and one of those was that he was alive during the American Civil War. And so if you go read this poem, you'll actually find that he references the Civil War in the poem because the situation was such that how are we to believe in peace on earth when there is a war between our nation, the North and the South? How are we supposed to believe in goodwill to men when every able man is being called to go and fight and give their lives or take another's life? How are we supposed to have hope? How are we supposed to rejoice? How are we supposed to worship during this Christmas season when these circumstances exist? And I know that for many of you, you may feel similarly. Christmas is a a joyous time, a festive time, but it also brings a lot of weight. Because for the very reason it is joyful, it can also be sorrowful. As we have to deal with the reality of strained relationships and families, whether that's an immediate or an extended family, where you you are reminded that you're not spending this time together, or, or you actually are spending this time together. It's one of the two times you actually get together during the year, and it's not very pleasant for any of you either, and none of you really want to be there can kind of put a damper on the festivities. Likewise, if you're like me and Molly and you're from farther away, which some of you are, you're 10 hours or more from your family and you're not going to see them at Christmas, which can be difficult for many of us. And for many of us, it's not just that, but it's the fact that you have experienced Christmas year in and year out with loved ones who are no longer here. And the pain and the sorrow that brings really makes it difficult to enjoy this season and to love it and to see it as a good thing. And this morning we're going to see in this text, I believe, I think we're going to see that we can go through any circumstance, no matter how bad or poor it is, and we can continue with it, not not focusing on our anxieties or our stresses, our worries, our depressions, not worrying about our fears that are brought about by this world, but that we can have faith because God 
is with us definitively in Christ. So before we read this text this morning, this whole chapter, uh, the context for it is that leading up to this event, Israel, the people of God, did not have a king. And they wanted a king. They said they wanted a king like the other nations. Now, God didn't place a king with his people originally. I mean, it seems pretty intuitive that God was their king. He would go out with them. He was their present to them. But they said they wanted a king like the other nations who would go out with them before them in war, who would be present with them and sitting on a throne. They were unsatisfied with God being the king over their nation. So they wanted a king like the other nations, and that's exactly what God gave them in the man Saul. A man who was very flawed and made a lot of bad mistakes. And then he replaced him with David, who was a man after God's own heart. But what does that really mean? Because he wasn't very good either. He did a lot of the things that kings that are bad did. Solomon, same story. But after Solomon, the third king over Israel... The kingdom split in two. And then you had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, or as it's called in this passage we read this morning, Ephraim, another name for Israel, commonly used by the southern kingdom. You had the northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim. Then you had the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, which is the tribe that David came out of, and in Judah was Jerusalem. And There were many kings over these two different kingdoms. And Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking to the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, during this period of time. And he spoke and prophesied during a period of about five different kings. And now he's here going for God to speak to King Ahaz. Because Ahaz is worried. Because Ahaz believes that Ephraim, Israel, is conspiring with another nation, Syria to come and conquer his kingdom, Judah. So he is fearful. He is scared and afraid. But Isaiah comes to Ahaz with a message. God speaks through Isaiah to Ahaz, don't you worry about those two kingdoms. They will not be a problem at all. Within 65 years, it says, within a lifetime, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. He's telling him not to worry. I am promising you this will not come to pass. And and then in verse 9, he calls not just Ahaz, but the whole nation of Judah to faith. It says in verse 9, If you are not, you being plural, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And I like how uh, Eugene Peterson translates that verse. He says, if you don't take your stand in faith, you won't have a leg to stand on. If you don't take your stand in faith, you won't have a leg to stand on. So he is called, the whole nation is called to have faith. That God's promise is going to come to pass. But apparently that didn't go well. Because then in verse 10, what we started reading this morning, Ahaz is spoken to by the Lord again, and this time the Lord says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Literally as deep as the place of the dead or as high as the heavenly realm of God. Literally, reach for the stars. Give me a, a, a strong, strong request. Give me, ask for a miracle of miracles, a sign that this promise will come to pass. 
And Ahaz responds, maybe mockingly spiritually, trying to look more spiritual than perhaps he is, says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Which sounds okay because, you know, later Jesus would say when he was teaching not to put the Lord to the test. We know that we're not supposed to test God. But this wasn't a test. It's not like when when we are thinking about changing jobs or getting married and say, Lord, give us a sign. I just need a billboard saying, marry her or take the new job or stay where you are. It's not that kind of test that we see throughout the Bible and we may do in our own lives. This is God saying, I want to give you a sign. I want to give you a sign so that you will have faith. And Ahaz doesn't want it. Ahaz currently is living in fear and he's living out of this fear. Ahaz is afraid of these kingdoms, and as long as he's afraid, he kind of has an excuse for inaction. He has an excuse for passivity. But as soon as he has to have faith, then he has to act. He has to live out that faith. Fear fear is crippling, and, and it can cause us to just make excuses. Fear is what sometimes often draws us to stay in our homes and lay in our beds and hide. But faith actually tells us that you have to get up and march out the door. Faith, living out of faith, allows us to do great things for God. That can be scary. That can be difficult. So fear is ruling King Ahaz. And God calls us to reject the fear of our circumstances and embrace faith in his promises. God calls us to reject that fear and instead embrace faith in his promises. As I said before, you've probably seen this. You probably know some individuals in your life. Maybe you have been that person. Maybe you are currently that person who is living out of a foundation of fear rather than a foundation of faith. And when you do that, it's not very pleasant for anyone. It's crippling. Maybe it's personally crippling for you and causes you to withdraw and quarantine off yourself. I mean, really, faith is like a virus in this way. And I I hate to use a metaphor like this while everyone's in the church is sick. However, faith like this is is a virus. And and, and it cripples us and either causes us to quarantine ourselves off from others or it causes us to to spread it and to to bring it to other people. And and we see this even in, in groups of people. In schools, in workplaces, and yes, even in churches. When one person catches the bug, which is fear, it will spread like a wildfire. Either that person will withdraw, and you'll slowly see them no longer coming to church, or you'll slowly see them busy instead of filling during the week instead of going to all the different activities the church has, or you'll see them withdraw from serving in the church. Fear becomes the thing that rules them. Or they come in and boldly announce their fear before everyone and draw everyone into it. Not just placing, not just bearing one another's burdens together so to fulfill the law of love, which we're commanded to do, but placing a burden on someone else, not for them to bear and to help you and to help you take it to the cross, but placing a burden on them that they have to absorb a burden that changes their entire mindset. When we let fear rule in our minds, we are either going to quarantine ourselves off from other people 
or we're going to create a mass contagion and be ground zero for a whole host of fear. And we see this as people fear many things. They fear less people in rooms. They fear less money in bank accounts. Can we all just privately admit for a minute that we all have had times in our life where either personally or within different groups that we're a part of, social clubs or churches or institutions, we allow fear to rule us. I know I can admit that many times I have, and I haven't always handled it well. I have often been the quarantined one. I have often been the one going and causing a contagion with others. That's just the natural way these things go. But the cure, the cure is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in God's promises. I'm not talking about faith in empty promises. I'm not saying have faith that this will happen even though God never said it would. I'm saying have faith in the very thing God has promised. God has promised his son. That's a promise we can bank on. That's a promise we can have faith in. It's not saying, oh, have faith that your car is going to turn on. You never know if it is. It's saying have faith in God who will keep his promises. Don't have faith in what some preacher says. Don't have faith in what some friend says. Have faith in what God says. And here we see that as the nation of Judah is being attacked by fear, God offers this sign to their king and to this nation that his promise will come to pass. And this is where we start to see that there is Sometimes in biblical prophecy, two different kind of prophecies going on. There's a near fulfillment in the immediate future, and there's a distant or a far fulfillment that occurs later. In this passage, if the sign was only about some event hundreds of years after Ahaz, it wouldn't do him a whole lot of good. So it seems that he needs a sign that'll happen soon, but we also may understand a second meaning. Now, it becomes difficult because if you look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So this is the sign that God is offering Ahaz. Now, from the very early days, now I'm going to pause. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 is a very famous verse in the Bible. It's quoted in the, the birth story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But that can cause some confusion if I am to say perhaps it was fulfilled before Christ came. But again, it seems that God's prophecy to Ahaz on the front end, the one that Isaiah gave him, had to be fulfilled to some extent in his lifetime for him to understand it. And then you get tripped up on that word, virgin. Because you would think if that happened in Ahaz's lifetime, it would be written down somewhere. Somewhere it would be said that this happened. Now, this actually gets us into a, a debate that's been going on for hundreds of years. 
historical critical scholars like to pretend they're making everything up. But this is something that's been happening since the first century. Within a hundred years of Jesus' death and resurrection, there was a debate about whether the word here meant virgin or not. Some arguing that the Hebrew word really just means young woman. And so it doesn't mean virgin, so it's not meaning Jesus' birth. Now, it's important to note that there is a bit of an argument there. There there is both the Hebrew word that means young woman that's used in this verse, and there's also a Hebrew word that means plainly virgin. And Isaiah didn't use that word here. But the argument goes that young woman in that context actually is always used to refer to a young woman who is also a virgin. And so Isaiah is actually using a more precise term. Instead of using virgin, which is a generic term, using one that means a young woman who is a virgin. And so we have kind of an argument here. Not only that, but before Jesus was even born, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, and they used the word that meant clearly virgin there when they translated it. So we have a case to be made that it does mean that. But then again, I ask the question, how do we understand how this could happen in Ahaz's time? I think this is the blessing of the ambiguity of this word. Because it could mean a young woman who is a virgin, who is conceived and bears a child while being a virgin, or it could refer to a young woman who is currently a virgin. Eugene Peterson, to mention his translation again, says, a girl who is presently a virgin will get pregnant. In Ahaz's time, all he needs to know that God has fulfilled his promise is that a woman who at the time he receives the prophecy is a virgin presumably gets married and has a child, and she calls that child Emmanuel, a title meaning God with us, which is a rebuke against Ahaz who is living out of fear and unwilling to receive God's word. It's now a rebuke that this child is called God with us. Reminding Ahaz that he has been unfaithful and believing that God is with him and that God is for him. So all we need in, in, in understanding the original prophecy for Ahaz was that situation. A woman who at the time of the prophecy was a virgin, has a child, calls him Emmanuel. And that child, before he's even of the age to start discerning good and evil which there's debate on what that is, but, you know, just a few years old, even before that happens, those two kingdoms you're worried about will be gone. And this tracks really well, because what ends up happening in verse 17, it says, the Lord at that time will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, when the kingdom split, the king of Assyria. See, in 722 B.C., Those two kingdoms weren't a problem for Judah anymore because Assyria rolls up and conquers the nation of Israel and takes all the Jewish people into captivity and asserts their power. And then two years later, within the time of a child growing to be able to discern good and evil, two years later, Assyria goes down and attacks Jerusalem. Now, Assyria fails. But it says, it goes on to describe what that day will be like in that day, that period of time, It says in verse 21, In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. We go back to verse 15. 
What does Emmanuel, this young child, do? He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So before he knows how to do that, when he's very just born, the kingdoms will be gone before that. Then he's going to be in that position about two years later, 720 B.C., and you're going to have Jerusalem attacked. And the curds and honey represent not just that they're in the land, it represents that it's not really a day of feasting. It's a day where they're not going to slaughter their cow or their goats. They're, they're going to just take the milk from them to eat the curds and the honey. So we see that this prophecy was likely fulfilled in the days of Ahaz. But then we have to think about how it could possibly be fulfilled in the future because we cannot ignore that in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is writing his gospel, and when he hears the story of Jesus, he goes, I've heard this before. When he hears that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus was God with them, he says, I have heard this before. That's an excellent question to ask yourself anytime you read your Bible, because the Bible helps us interpret the Bible. God's Word helps us interpret God's Word. The question you should constantly ask yourself is, where have I heard this before? Matthew hears the story of Jesus and connects it with Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's not just that a a random child was born and called Emmanuel in the 700 B.C.s. It's not just that Ahaz knew that these kingdoms would disappear and that Assyria was coming to attack. Matthew reads this and goes, no, 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 no. There is a greater sign here. This is a mere foreshadowing of what God has done definitively in Christ, which is that he has fulfilled his promise. God fulfilled his promise conclusively and exclusively in Christ. So that Emmanuel, God with us, was not just some title meant as a rebuke, but in Jesus, Emmanuel is reality. Jesus is God with us. He is fully God with us. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell so that there was not a bit of Jesus that was any less God than before. And it's not just part of God. It's not just the Son of God, which is a part of God that came and entered. It's the fullness of God. All of God was present in the person of Jesus. So it's not just God with us as a warm feeling. It's God with us taking a human nature, so that when we think of the infant baby Jesus lying in a manger, it's not just a child that needs to grow into being God, it is the fullness of God as a baby, already swaddled in little clothes, already fully all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. There was not a lack of God in the infant Christ. And so when it says he grew in wisdom, it was the humanity of Jesus that grows. His body did grow, but his divinity never needed to. From the very beginning when Christ is born. In fact, from the very beginning when Christ is conceived, the fullness of God is present with and in him. And this is so important. If you think for a moment that this isn't, that we can debate these things, let's be clear 
Your salvation hinges on the fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Because the reality is every sin you ever commit, if you were only to commit one, would be a sin against an infinite God. How are you going to pay him back for that? Not to mention the fact that I can almost guarantee none of you have only sinned once. And not only that, but there's a multitude of people across this earth who have sinned. The price for humanity's sin could not be paid by a mere person, a mere human being. It had to be paid by God himself, the only other infinite being in existence. So for salvation to come, it had to be the full, infinite God to bring it. But it's not God who sinned. It's human beings like you and me. So if God is going to redeem human beings, then it requires a full person, physically and spiritually, both body and soul, that have to be saved, that have to be redeemed. So it's important that God is, that the full God not only saves us, but he does it through a full human person. So that on the cross and in the resurrection, salvation was purchased infinitely by God through the body and soul of a human being. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And in that reality, it makes perfect sense that Jesus was born of a virgin. I'm not saying it was necessary, but it certainly fits our expectations you know, there, there are many myths, there are many fictional stories that mention a virgin birth. Just to get one that you may not be thinking of, Star Wars. If you've ever gone watch the, uh, uh, the prequel movies, George Lucas throws in this little detail about how Darth Vader, you know, the big scary guy who, yeah, okay, he was born of a virgin. So the movie goes. But that makes no sense with anything else that we know about Star Wars when we hear that. But unlike, unlike that, with Christ, it actually makes sense that he would be born of a virgin. His virgin birth protects his humanity because he is born like us, conceived in the womb of a woman and born of a woman. But it also protects his divinity because then no one could debate whether he was just a mere human being because mere human beings are born of a father and a mother. With the father absent, there's room to say that it was a miracle that conceived Jesus. So it fits our expectations, but it's also not random because it's foreshadowed in the past. We have Isaiah chapter 7 here already hinting to us, already hinting to us of a God, of a son born of a virgin. But not only that, you can go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in chapter 3, Genesis 3.15, where the, the curse is described on man, woman, and the serpent after the sin has entered God's creation. And God promises that a seed of woman will come and crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will come back and strike his heel. This is an image of a wounded victor who is going to conquer the serpent, which represents Satan and sin and death. It's an image of one who is going to come and conquer, but conquer in a way where a mortal wound is inflicted. Is that not the image of Jesus on the cross dying for our sins, being raised from the dead, defeating death and Satan himself? 
But that phrase, seed of woman, is odd. I'm not going to get into biology for the sake of everyone in here. But you wouldn't expect someone to describe any person as a seed of a woman. Maybe a seed of man, possibly, but not a seed of woman. But it's in that odd phrase that we get veiled until we come back with clear eyes, having seen who Christ is and how these things were fulfilled, we can look back to Genesis 3.15 and see, from the very beginning, this was God's plan. Far better than any plan we could craft or imagine. And the good thing is, because God's promise was definitively fulfilled in Christ, the good news is God is always with us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Jesus has died on the cross for our sin, been raised from the dead, defeating death itself. And then he appears to many of his followers and teaches before he ascends to heaven. And his final words recorded in Matthew to his disciples are this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We sometimes imagine the Bible story, at least I do, as all the way back here, God created a good creation. And then we screwed it up, of course. And then there's a history of time where God tries to patch it up with rituals and sacrifices that doesn't really work. So eventually we get to God sending Jesus, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead. That's all good and great. But then what God does is he abandons us by ascending to heaven. Jesus has finally come. God is finally present with us. And then, poof, he's gone. And we have to wait. Presumably, maybe thousands of years. Now it's been 2,000 before Christ returns. But we need to pause for a moment and think about that ascension. Because Jesus teaches us that it is better for him to leave and be ascended to the right hand of the Father than if he stayed in our presence today. Because when Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, he sends his spirit, the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, to dwell within all of those who have faith. So that we have more of God with us than if he stood just merely physically with us. Yeah, we have those moments where we cry and we wish Jesus could just put his arms around us and hold us, but the reality is we already have God with us more than we could ever have if he was merely just physically next to us. Because through the power of the Spirit, Jesus is present to all those who believe. So that Paul says, it's the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that now lives in you. The reality is, in Christ, it's not just that God is with us walking the earth with Peter and James and John and even Pontius Pilate and all those people he healed. Wow, they got Jesus, they got God with us, but we don't get God with us. But because Jesus ascended to heaven and sent his spirit, now every person, regardless of time or place, has more access to God with them than they would have ever had if they were just merely in his physical presence. So that it doesn't matter if you're an Old Testament saint in Israel or in Egypt. It doesn't matter if you are a New Testament Christian in eastern Tennessee. God is with us. Emmanuel. Regardless, Emmanuel, God with us always in Christ. So that no matter your life circumstances, it's true, God is with us. If you're going through a period of joy, Emmanuel, 
If you're going through a period of sorrow, Emmanuel. If you are facing temptation, Emmanuel. If you are undergoing trials, Emmanuel. If you just got a promotion, Emmanuel. If your church is blowing up and growing, Emmanuel. If your church is shrinking and winnowing, Emmanuel. It doesn't matter life circumstances. God is with us. God is for us. And God would never forsaken or abandon us. It's not like God just does not care. God cares so much. I go back to that poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He had a difficult life. He had several children, one of whom died as a child. Then his wife died very tragically. I'm not going to spoil how that happened because you're all going to go see the movie. But he had a very tragic life in many ways. Actually, that was his second wife to die. Uh, He had another one that died, and, and he felt responsible for it all. And so he goes through... The Civil War. In fact, he wrote poetry that helped spark the Civil War, that encouraged people to push for the end of slavery. And he felt responsible because his goal was never to see a bunch of people die. He even had one son who went to war when he didn't want him to and was injured. And again, another thing he just felt responsible about. And he had all these circumstances. And he, like Ahaz, had a fight between two kingdoms, the north and the south. But for him, it was one nation divided. And in all these circumstances of his personal life and his national life, he struggled. And he felt that it was hard to undergo this Christmas season like that. And he writes this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Brothers and sisters, even though it may feel like we are in our darkest times, in various ways, in various places of our life, and if you do not feel that now, you may surely in the future, the reality is that God is not dead. He does not sleep. He has not abandoned us. He has become so present to us. He has given up everything to come and to live among us, to die a death we deserve, to be raised from the dead, to undergo all that, to be ascended to heaven so that we can have God present with us if we would simply reject fear of our circumstances and embrace the faith God would have for us. Let's pray.